In the feature film, The Man Who Invented Christmas, 2017, a character gives voice to the supposed truth that the holiday was wasting away in the decades before the publication of A Christmas Carol, 1843. Does anyone celebrate it anymore? In the book on which the film was based, the English Christmas in the first decades of the 19th century is described as a downtrodden holiday, a second-tier holiday, and a relatively minor affair. These popular sources illustrate well the persistence of this overblown impression. Indeed, a scholarly source published in 1993 went so far as to make this unmeasured assertion. Christmas celebrations were dying out in Europe and America before Charles Dickens' 1843 publication. Christmas was both transformed and greatly expanded over the course of the Victorian age. Nevertheless, it was already a major thriving holiday in England, even in the early decades of the 19th century. Not all scholars have accepted that Christmas was languishing from, uh, from neglect before Dickens, but those who do have repeatedly used one particular piece of evidence to prove the point. In 1986, Goldie and Perdue wrote, Christmas in the first decades of the 19th century was neither a major event in the calendar nor a popular festival. In 20 of the years between 1790 and 1835, the Times did not mention Christmas at all. The Times is the authoritative newspaper of England. Even the superb, superb scholar Ronald Hutton echoed it. In 20 of the years between 1790 and 1835, the Times did not mention the festival, and it never referred to it with enthusiasm. There are, however, several problems with using this evidence to establish the wider thesis. First, newspapers were shorter in those days. Tellingly, the Times was only four pages throughout this entire date range, but doubled to eight pages in the year immediately following, 1836. Second, newspapers then were less likely to refer to features of life that are so common that they can be taken for granted. Imagine arguing that school children in this period were less enthusiastic about getting out for the summer break because the Times often failed to mention it. Third, in order to prove that thesis, prove that Christmas was a second-tier holiday, one would also need to offer evidence that the Times spoke more often and with greater ardor about Easter, New Year's, St. Valentine's, or whatever holidays one was reserving for the first tier. That these scholars have never done. Most of all, however, the claim is simply wrong. The Times, in fact, never failed to mention Christmas in a single year from 1790 to 1835. From 1817 onwards, Christmas is referred to over 125 times every year. For 10 of those years, it was over 200 times. In 1829, the total was 308. This is the, 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 the dream of now being able to digitally search for keywords that we have. Uh, I think the, the original scholarship was done by just looking at the official index, and if it didn't have it in the official index, um, then they just assumed it wasn't there. <laughs> As to enthusiasm, in an article titled Christmas in the, 20, uh, um, the December 25th, 1822 issue, the Times has ordered everyone to celebrate the festival with gaiety, generosity, decorations of holly and berries, wassail bowls, mirth without limit, and in general, all the merriments of Christmas. The Feast of Christ's Nativity was observed by a much smaller percentage of the population in Scotland, where New Year's, uh, which is called Hogmanay in Scotland, was the most popular holiday in those decades. But anybody Scottish can just cheer right now. Hey, okay, I found one. <laughs> <laughs> but even Scottish newspapers tended to comment on Christmas annually. 
In the year before Christmas Carol was published, the Perthshire Advertiser accepted that Presbyterian Scotland stood apart from the religious observances of Christmas undertaken in the English and Romanish churches. Nevertheless, it also, it also assumed that even Calvinist Scots were keeping Christmas as a season of merrymaking, complete with mistletoe. And it exhorted them to uphold the custom of charity to the poor as well. The narrower claim that a Christmas carol revived a dying festival does not even make internal sense. The entire story emphasizes that with the sole exception of Ebenezer Scrooge, everyone is already enthusiastically celebrating Christmas. This sour old miser is being continually greeted with Merry Christmas, and other Yuletide activities assault him in an ongoing barrage, caroling, charity fundraising, and invitation to a holiday party, and so on. On Christmas, Scrooge sees people flocking through the streets in their best clothes on their way to church. Likewise, in the Pickwick Papers, in a passage written in 1836 and set in 1827, Dickens portrays a season of general merriment, including holly, mince pies, mistletoe, games, storytelling, and much more. The Christmas carol sung in that novel even pronounces the fe feast of Christ's nativity to be the king of all the seasons. The Christmas chapters in Washington Irving's sketchbook were first published in 1820. Although that account is remembered for its nostalgic emphasis on past customs, it is nevertheless framed with a portrait of the universal uh, festivity and social enjoyment in Christmas present. In addition to Sundays, the Factory Act of 1833 only gave child laborers the right to two other days off in the entire year, Good Friday and Christmas. Imagine yourself as a child laborer in 18, that, that was the more generous. Before 1833, you didn't get those. Now you got Sundays, Good Friday, and Christmas. Even in the decades of, in the first decades of the century, Christmas was widely observed as one of the greatest days for feasting in the annual cycle. For many, it was the greatest. While therefore keeping continuities in mind, this talk will present some of the ways that Christmas changed and expanded over the 19th century. One of the major threads offered here is an underexplored but vital component of this story, the growing acceptance of Christmas by Reformed and dissenting Protestants, that is, denominations such as Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, and Congregationalists. As the contrast between England and Scotland has already indicated, the merging of these additional Protestant streams into the already existing current of holiday making caused Christmas to leave the 19th century as a much mightier river. The Society of Friends, or Quakers, was one of the Protestant bodies that most strongly objected to Christmas. This stance was articulated in an article by John Bellows, Why I Ought Not to Keep Christmas, written in 1879, but often reprinted in Quaker periodicals, even into the 20th century. Bellows argued that Friends had a duty to refrain from feasting and to keep their businesses open on December 25th. To do otherwise would be to further superstition, idolatry, and apostasy, and even, he hinted darkly, the cause of the Antichrist. The Quakers, however, were numer numerically small. The significant forces of opposition to Christmas came from the Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists. These denominations had enough local autonomy that their witness on this matter was not uniform. Still, some at least asserted that all their fellow believers in their denomination also repudiated the holiday. Daniel uh, Dana, a Presbyterian minister in Massachusetts, claimed in 1816, 
If the sanctity of Christmas cannot be supported by the scriptures, the question one would think is decided. Protestants acknowledge no other rule of faith and practice. The same is the opinion of Presbyterians at large and of uh, the generality of Christians, except Episcopalians, throughout the United States. The same opinion prevails almost universally among the Scotch. A minister in New York, uh, Cortland Van uh, Ressenler, writing in 1842, assumed that he was speaking for all Presbyterians when he rejected Christmas as unbiblical. Rather, he insisted the holiday was a popish plot from a corrupt age, a human invention leading on human depravity to greater depravity. Especially in the early decades of the century, many Congregationalists and Baptists agreed. The Congregational Minister Jonathan Blanchard, for example, although he lived to 1892, rejected Christmas on principle to the last. He was the president of Wheaton College in Illinois. That's where I teach. I always say I admire him greatly, but I would not have wanted him as my father-in-law. That's how I feel about Jonathan Blanchard. And as late as 1864, he was still insisting that the term break not come until after December 25th. Those four students. <laughs> Even in 1880, the college newspaper was still trying to shore up the old view. Christmas is coming. The observance of the day is on the increase, but it does not follow that its observance is desirable. Christians are nowhere commanded to commemorate the supposed day on which our Lord took upon him the form of fallen man, but they are rather to commemorate his death and resurrection when he took upon him his glorified body. As we all know, however, Christmas is hard to escape. In a steadily expanding number of places, it was a public holiday. Businesses closed, families gathered. Presbyterians in New Zealand, for instance, used the opportunity to meet with their relations. Especially as the century wore on, only a very small minority of Reformed and dissenting Protestants objected to feasting on December 25th, or even such traditions as holly decorations. By 1874, the English Quaker statesman John Bright was keeping at home what he described as an old-fashioned Christmas. Thus, the situation became more and more blurred. This is delightfully evoked in a story by Harriet Beecher Stowe that draws autobiographically on her own childhood in Connecticut in the 1810s and 20s. A little girl called Dolly is the daughter of a minister, presumably Presbyterian like Stowe's own father, who preaches against Christmas and does not allow his family to observe it. The fun of the story is that this prohibition does not really matter. It is overwhelmed by the Yuletide. As everyone else is celebrating Christmas, Dolly gets to as well. Her maternal grandparents send her gifts, a neighbor gives her treats, she even sneaks into the Episcopal Church for its Christmas Eve service. <laughs> By 1867, the Congregational Minister R.W. Dale reported that the social side of the holiday had swept all before it. Here in England, we all keep Christmas. Romanists and Protestants, churchmen and dissenters, Wesleyans and Baptists. I have a strong suspicion that even the members of the Society of Friends eat roast beef and set fire to their plum puddings on the 25th of December. An 1870 article, Christmas in Scotland, claimed that even the land of the Covenanters was capitulating. Christmas dinners, Christmas shows, Christmas boxes, Christmas trees, Christmas cards, and so forth are fast coming in vogue among all classes. Shop windows in the towns are duly decorated with holly at the festive season. 
Such signs warrant the impression that despite all ecclesiastical antagonism, Scotland will in course of time assimilate somewhat to her southern sister in paying honor to the great Christian festival. Good Calvinist men and women rejoice. The crucial difference was that these denominations generally did not offer a Christmas worship service. Still, even that line could become fuzzy. The public holiday was a convenient occasion for congregational as well as family gatherings. It became a popular day for the inaugural service of a new local church. Christmas 1828, a Thursday, was marked by worship services to open a general Baptist chapel in Loughborough, England. After such an occasion, Baptists, as well as Anglicans, could discuss the sermon they had heard on December 25th, making the distinction between observing a holy day with public worship and using a holiday for public worship, a subtle one. The practice was sufficiently congenial that this Baptist congregation began to gather annually on Christmas for a tea meeting in support of its charitable work. The biggest wedge by far, however, was the Sunday schools and children's ministry. As the century progressed, it became highly popular for Sunday schools to gather on the holiday for a special event or to have some kind of Christmas party or program. Um, reading this over this morning, I had a new thought, which I didn't have in all the research for the five years I did this project. Um, it's kind of like um, Vacation Bible School. There's all of these working class children that are let loose on this day because it's, it's a, it's a, you can't work that day. And it's a way of um, giving them a Christian encounter because their parents don't know what to do with them. And so it's like, put on a Christmas service because uh, they're out of work anyway, or out of school. As the century became, all right. Um, uh, uh, yeah. This was true across the major denominations. An eminent Episcopalian clergyman in Boston, Phillips Brooks, wrote the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, for the 1868 Christmas program of his church's Sunday school. For reformed and dissenting congregations, however, such occasions were a major stepping stone towards celebrating Christmas. Moreover, these events could be indistinguishable from a Christmas worship service. The congregational minister, James Sherman, preached a sermon for young persons at Surrey Chapel, London, on Christmas 1837, a Monday. But not, not only did he choose for his text the most traditional possible passage, Luke 2, but he even recommended observing Christmas. Let us therefore pray that a day set apart by the general consent of the Christian church to commemorate the nativity of our blessed Savior should be kept by us as a holy day, a joyful day, a thanksgiving day, a day of spiritual feasting and gladness. Alexander Fletcher, despite being both Scottish and Presbyterian, became famous for his annual Christmas sermon to thousands of children gathered together from a variety of London Sunday schools. He began this practice in 1816. In one of these, Christmas 1854, a Monday, he even reflected that they could learn from Catholics to attend more to the Virgin Mary. How thankful Mary was. We do not say so much about the Virgin Mary as the chapel opposite. Perhaps we do not think enough about her, of her wonderful humility, her wonderful holiness, and her wonderful gift of prayer. My soul doth magnify the Lord. How beautiful. The report in the Blackburn Standard on Christmas 1838, a Tuesday, was overwhelmingly a list of Sunday school events and church tea parties. The independent chapel had around 600 people at its event. These congregationalists called it a tea party, but there was an address by the minister and appropriate hymns were sung, once again indicating that what was officially a social event could serve pretty well for a Christmas worship service. 
For some, even such efforts were not enough. Christmas worship services were very popular with Catholics, Anglicans, and Lutherans. Even when it fell on a weekday, in many churches, Christmas would gather the largest congregation of the entire year. Scrooge went to church on Christmas, as does most everyone in Victorian Christmas stories. The Congregational Minister C.M. Davies made a concerted effort to attend as many Anglican worship services as possible in London on Christmas 1871, a Monday. He found everywhere that the churches were putting on numerous services and they were all packed. Davies observed that evening services were not held because there was a general feeling that this time should be allotted to social gatherings. So leave the evening for the family festivities and fun. St. Mary Magdalene um, Paddington was a church that was only a few years old at that time, and Davies treats it as typical rather than exceptional. It offered seven services on Christmas, while still being careful not to intrude into the evening, including six communion services, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 11.45 a.m. Moreover, the church was crowded in every part. Davies was doing journalistic research, but there are numerous reports from across the English-speaking world of Reformed and dissenting Protestants, even ministers, sneaking off to another denomination to attend a Christmas service. In the 1868 account of Midnight Mass at St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in Auckland, the reporter not only emphasized the large attendance, around 800 people, but also made a point of observing that they were persons of all denominations. Thus, the next step was for these reformed and dissenting congregations to begin offering Christmas services themselves, if for no other reason than so as not to be at a competitive disadvantage. In Stowe's story, the minister's wife warns her husband that if he does not get over his objections, I shouldn't wonder if this other church should draw very seriously on your congregation, but I don't want it to begin by taking away our own children. When the first Congregational Church of Rockford, Illinois decided to celebrate Christmas in 1864, it explained bluntly, our Episcopal and Methodist friends make so much of this holiday that others must follow suit. In Catholic Dublin, a Presbyterian congregation in the Synod of Ulster found it desirable to have an annual Christmas service already beginning in 1798. In Boston, a concerted attempt was made in 1818 to turn December 25th into a day of worship rather than business, with three congregational churches readily joining in. The Baptist minister, C.H. Spurgeon, was the most popular preacher of the Victorian age. Despite his devotion to the Puritans, as a 17-year-old interim pastor at Water Beach near Cambridge, he held services on Christmas 1841, a Thursday. I preached twice on Christmas to crammed congregations, and again on Sunday quite as full. There were early adopters and holdouts, but a lot more congregations from the major reformed and dissenting denominations were offering Christmas services from the 1860s onward, and very few of those who were not still believed that some principle was at stake. Scholars have also rightly noted the influence of another religious force, the rise of Tractarianism, the Oxford Movement, Anglo-Catholicism, and Ritualism. The effect of these intertwining movements arising within Anglicanism was to move their followers closer to some of the practices of the Catholic Church. John Keeble's The Christian Year, 1827, 
which was popular even with many non-Anglicans, helped to emphasize observing the feasts and fasts of the church. The Victorian period saw a craze for adding ever more evergreens and other decorations to the interior of churches for the Feast of Christ's Nativity. You can, you can find all of these books that are just how-to manuals for decorating your church uh, with, with the appropriate uh, plants and flowers. They're quite fun to look at. Especially towards the end of the century, some Protestants began adopting Catholic practices such as midnight mass and a manger scene. Admittedly, the Tractarians did not always get their way. From a strict liturgical point of view, Advent should be a time of self-denial and sober reflection, including on the second coming of Christ. In the tracts for the times that gave the movement its name, John Henry Newman contributed Advent sermons on Antichrist. One of these sermons ends. Okay, these are the very last words of an Advent sermon. Men now give fair names to sin and sinners, but then all the citizens of Babylon will appear in their true colors as the word of God exhibits them as dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and lovers and makers of lies. The end. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> well, that particular tradition was destined to become pop, not become pop, popular. Even low church Protestants were often pulled in more liturgical directions when it came to celebrating the birth of their savior. A distinct but related factor was a theological trend towards emphasizing the doctrine of the Incarnation. The historian Boyd Hilton has argued convincingly that the first half of the 19th century was part of the Age of Atonement, but the second half was the Age of the Incarnation. This doctrinal shift was a strong current among Anglo-Catholics. Their manifesto volume, Lex, Lex Mundi, 1889, conceptualized the entire Christian faith as the religion of the Incarnation. One essay even speculated that God would have still become incarnate even if there had been no fall, thus making the atonement merely a contingent reality while the incarnation is an inevitable and essential one. Many varieties of Christians shared in this theological development. Evangelicals and Protestant dissenters also drew closer to the manger. In the old evangelicalism and the new 1889, the evangelical congregational minister R.W. Dale observed that even that even for evangelicals, the age of atonement was over. I do not mean that the death of Christ for the sins of men is denied by modern evangelicals. If it were, they would cease to be evangelicals. But it is practically relegated by many to a secondary position. The incarnation with all that it reveals concerning God, man, and the universe, concerning this life and the life to come stands first. With the early evangelicals, the death of Christ for human sin stood first. The older view naturally lent more theological weight to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. In other words, another factor in the exaltation of Christmas to the prominent place in the 19th century is that the, old, that, is that the doctrine it celebrates had also risen for many to the supreme position in Christian thought. What you've been waiting for. A well-known feature of Christmas in the 19th century is the emergence and ascendancy of Santa Claus. What has not been appreciated, however, is that this was a result of a concerted campaign by a range of Christians. If you view it as a conspiracy, it was a Christian conspiracy. St. Nicholas as a magical gift bearer was introduced into the consciousness of the English-speaking world by a group of high church Episcopalians in New York. The most important of these was Washington Irving, who sprinkled into his fanciful history of the Dutch in New York accounts of St. Nicholas flying around in his wagon and coming down chimneys to deliver presents. 
The scholar Charles W. Jones went so far as to claim Santa Claus was made by Washington Irving. That level of credit, however, is usually given to another New Yorker who was presumably influenced by Irving, Clement Clark Moore. In 1822, Moore wrote one of the most oft-reprinted poems by an American, A Visit from St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Twas the Night Before Christmas. In it, St. Nicholas is a jolly, rotund figure dressed in fur who drives a sleigh pulled by reindeer and who spreads Christmas cheer by surreptitiously coming down chimneys to fill stockings with toys. Moore was a devout Episcopalian. His father had been Bishop of New York, and Moore himself was a professor of Bible at General Theological Seminary. His publications included one attacking Thomas Jefferson for having an insufficiently reverent attitude towards the Bible. The good news of this gift bearer spread, and it was enthusiastically propagated by innumerable Christians. People today often think of seeing Santa Claus in a department store, but that practice did not begin until the last dozen years of the century and was confined to cities and large towns. Most children in the 19th century who saw Santa Claus in person met him at their church's Sunday school. This was so much the case that if you wanted to dress up like Santa, the way to acquire your costume was to order it through a religious supplies company. To continue to keep an eye on reformed and ascending Protestants, in 1886 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, boys and girls were welcomed to both Santa Clausville, sponsored by the Congregationalists, and the Gathering of the Nations to Meet Santa Claus by the Presbyterians. The Presbyterian one sounds really cool, doesn't it? I want to go. By the end of the century, children did not even need to go to Sunday school, a Sunday school event or a department store to see Santa. They could just encounter him as they walked across town because one of the most theologically conservative of evangelical denominations, the Salvation Army, had started populating street corners with Santa, raising money to help the poor. In 1897, Francis Church wrote his famous editorial, commonly known as, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus. Church was the religion editor for the, Sunday, for the Sun, a New York City newspaper, the son of a Baptist minister and an Episcopalian. At his death, the paper did not mention his celebrated answer to the question, is there a Santa Claus? But it did run a clergyman's tribute to Francis P. Church, which emphasized his personal Christian faith. In the 19th century, if one were to sneak a peek under a Santa beard, one would usually encounter a devoutly Christian countenance. Why was this so? At least part of the answer is that Santa Claus was a welcome vehicle for expressing the Christian ideal for giving. Jesus instructs his followers to use secrecy. But when thou dost alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms might be in secret. Matthew 6. St. Nicholas was so popular in the medieval period primarily for one act of his, giving money anonymously by throwing it through a window into their house at night so that three poor girls could have a dowry. In the 12th century, some French nuns hit upon the pious and happy idea of secretly leaving presents for poor children in the name of St. Nicholas. In later centuries, Europeans credited a variety of other such gift bearers. Gift bearers. Moore's depiction of St. Nicholas, who was soon going by the name Santa Claus, was the one that best captured the popular imagination in America and which would go on to sweep many other countries before it. 
before they were introduced to Santa Claus, we can sometimes almost sense that Christians felt his absence. The Scottish author George MacDonald, for instance, was given to filling his stories with Christian teaching and even to writing sermons. Word of Santa Claus did not spread widely in Britain until the 1870s. In 1864, MacDonald published My Uncle Peter, a story about a generous Christian man. He would find out that people were in need and then send them money or gifts anonymously with the attached note saying only, with Christmas Day's compliments. One senses that both Uncle Peter and George MacDonald would have found it great fun to write instead from Santa Claus had they known of such a possibility. Not only does crediting Santa allow for giving secretly, as Christ counseled, but it also takes away the patronizing tone of the better off giving to the needy and replaces it with lighthearted charm and brotherly mischievousness. Such a service is invaluable. It is hardly surprising that by 1885, there was a Santa Claus Society in London for distributing gifts to the poor. To give in a Christian manner is to be a secret Santa. And it is deeply within the spirit of Christianity to give to your children in such a generous and enchanting way that it not only enhances the delight, but also eradicates all the usual worries about whether or not father and mother can afford it. In short, from a Christian point of view, if Santa Claus did not exist, it might have been desirable to invent him. Along with Santa Claus, the 19th century brought widespread adoption of the Christmas tree. German Protestants rightly take credit for popularizing this pleasant custom. If anybody's German, they can cheer now. <laughs> Ernest T.A. Hoffman's The Nutcracker and The Mouse King, he may know the uh, ballet version of that, uh, 1816, set a scene of domestic delight by first describing the tree. The large Christmas tree in the center was laden with gold and silver apples, and like birds and blossoms, sugar almonds and bright bonbons and other pretty cakes come forth from the branches. The most wonderful thing about the tree, however, were the hundreds of lights that sparkled like stars, and the tree seemed to invite them in a most friendly fashion to come and pluck its buds and fruits. Around the tree, everything shone in bright and superb colors. In the 1830s, this custom spread to Norway and other Lutheran countries. In December uh, 1844, the Danish writer Hans Christian Andersen even published a short story about the life of a Christmas tree. Meanwhile, the tree was also on the rise in America. There is an 1812 depiction of a Christmas tree from Germantown, Pennsylvania, but the 1830s are the crucial decade for its spread in America. As a widespread trend, it came later in Britain. A popular illustration of Queen Victoria, her German husband, Prince Albert, and their children around a Christmas tree in 1848 is credited with awakening more general interest in that nation. When Dickens wrote A Christmas Tree for a December 1850 issue of Household Words, he was still referring to it as German. Later in the century, Germans added another association. They became the major producer of glass Christmas tree ornaments. For those who could afford one, a Christmas tree was often seen as an essential part of celebrating Christmas for German Protestants. The great efforts that were made to import Tannenbaum to the German frontline trenches during the First World War are indicative of how indispensable they were perceived to be. 
the British were just baffled that they had used all their supply chain to bring Christmas trees to the front line. As with, the, with Santa Claus, many children in 19th century America first saw a Christmas tree at a Sunday school event. One of the most important trends in the 19th century was the domestication of Christmas. Older customs were often communal ones in the open air. These could include begging rituals and obnoxious music. We've moved the begging rituals to Halloween. Um, Irving's good old Christmas song proclaims, now Christmas has come, let us beat up the drum and call all our neighbors together. In the long run, such ways could not survive the forces of industrialization and urbanization. Stephen Nissenbaum has argued lucidly that these older rites served to blow off steam in traditional communities, but were experienced as more menacing and intolerable by prosperous people in urban areas who no longer knew or trusted those from the lower orders. Once again, Germans led the way. When Samuel Coleridge wrote an account of his experience of Christmas 1798 at Ratzenberg, it is telling that he titled it Christmas Within Doors in the north of Germany. It is as if Coleridge is reporting that the focus of the German Christmas is the home. In his Christmas Eve, a dialogue, 1806, the German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher went to great lengths to signal that Christmas should be centered on the home, even striking a related note that would also triumph in the 19th century. Christmas is very specially the children's festival. When the German Charles Follen immigrated to America in 1827, he expressed his disappointment that unlike in his homeland, there were no festivals for the children. Follen needed only to wait for the shift to reach his adopted country. By 1868, Louise May Alcock could confidently classify Christmas as one of the home festivals. Dispersed families reunited for the holiday, reuniting for the holiday was a long-standing ideal. Even in 1860, Irving extolled Christmas as the season for gathering together of family connections, of calling back the children of a family who had launched forth in life, once more to assemble about the paternal hearth. That, however, was only a realistic as well as an idealistic standard for those elite families that possessed the required money and leisure. With the rise of railway travel and employers giving more than just one day off, this goal could be achieved by a wider circle. The countervailing reality was that many people were household servants, and therefore their time was not their own, even on December 25th, perhaps especially not on December 25th. They experienced the domestic Christmas only to the extent that their employers made them feel like they were part of their families. The rise of Santa Claus, who visited the home, and the Christmas tree in the home, as well as the new emphasis on children, all reinforced the domestication of Christmas. Supporting Nissenbaum's analysis, one can see the communal Christmas living on longer in more close-knit communities. In Virginia, traditions of large fox hunts and roaming from house to house continued longer. In Britain, some working-class communities still wanted to attend sporting events on December 25th into the 20th century, before they too eventually capitulated to the cult of home. The growing conviction that the holiday was primarily a home festival caused many Reformed and dissenting Protestants to abandon their experiments with Christmas worship, worship services. Instead, they usually just held a Christmas-themed service on the Sunday closest to December 25th. 
This became Charles Spurgeon's practice as a settled pastor in London. Christmas Eve services were also popular. Many beloved Christmas carols were written in the 19th century. Whether or not they went to church on December 25th, for many people, Christmas was no longer primarily an open-air event, nor an ecclesial event, but a domestic one. It would be a mistake, however, to equate domestification with secularization. Passover is primarily a domestic holiday, but that doesn't make it a secular one. Rather than categorizing things as inherently religious or secular, it is more often the case that the devout often experience things that are not intrinsically religious devoutly, while the secular are impervious to devotional aspects even of explicitly religious matters. Certainly, the domestic Christmas was more aligned with Christian sentiment than a certain kind of older communal Christmas marked by gambling, drunkenness, and public rowdiness. Schleiermacher was so committed to portraying Christmas as centered in the home that he even had his characters unmoved by the church service. Nevertheless, he saw this domestic festival as Christian, holy, and devotionally powerful. He even went so far as to have a minister perform a baptism in the home to underline on Christmas Day the profound sacredness of the occasion. Drawing on Christ's words of consecration for the Eucharist, Dickens insisted that even a Christmas tree brought sacramental grace. I hear a whisper going through the leaves, this in commemoration of the law of love and kindness, mercy and compassion, this in remembrance of me. In 1889, the New Zealand Herald expressed well the ideal of Christmas as a sacred domestic festival. As is customary in all English communities, the holiday of Christmas Day will be chiefly observed as a day of devotion, according to which the scattered members of a family gather around the paternal table and observe the day for the most part as a religious festival. Some of the older Christmas traditions were therefore domesticated as well. Another Victorian innovation was the Christmas cracker. It's not a food, it is this. A little package that sets off a little explosion when you open it. And it can be seen as a family-friendly household echo of the rowdy old public Christmas that sometimes involved fireworks and gunfire. Children could be set loose to romp around the house as little lords of misrule. Antiquarians relished accounts of Christmases of old at which kings and queens had a play performed for their numerous guests. In yet another domestication in Little Women, 1868, the girls put on a little play in their home. As the holiday moved from communal celebration with neighbors to a domestic celebration with family, this left a void regarding how to acknowledge the day in one's wider social circle. One way that emerged to meet that need was the Christmas card. The first Christmas card for general sale was the one designed in 1843. Nevertheless, that initial offering did not produce an immediate trend. Publishers tried it again in the 1860s, and Christmas cards took off in the decades that followed. By 1882, a postal worker in Washington, D.C. was becoming resigned to the new normal. I thought last year would be the end of the Christmas card mania, but I don't think so now. <laughs> By that time, most Christmas cards were being made in Germany. Significant decreases in the cost of postage helped the trend along. If whom one was with for most of Christmas Day had shrunk down to the family circle, 
the Christmas card allowed one to include numerous friends and acquaintances in one celebration of the season. By 1895, it was reported that Queen Victoria was sending out thousands of Christmas cards every year. For the tighter circle of close friends and relations, one could send a gift. The 19th century also saw a move from sending gifts at New Year's to sending them at Christmas. This was less of a stark shift than it is sometimes made out to be. New Year's is, after all, one of the 12 days of Christmas, and gifts given on January 1st were sometimes called Christmas presents. Santa Claus himself sometimes even made his mysterious visit on New Year's Eve. On this front, Queen Victoria was not an early adopter. She entered the 20th century still keeping to the old custom of New Year's gifts. The growing abundance and availability of mass-produced goods turned shopping into another major feature of the holiday season. Many of the standard ways of describing aspects of Christmas, though all conveying some truth, have become so overdone that they now sometimes obscure rather than just illuminate. Pagan, secular, invention of tradition, sentimentality, consumerism, commercialism, and so on. One of these is nostalgia. Of course, there is a nostalgic element in how many people approach Christmas. Nevertheless, other realities are often misguidedly subsumed under this label. True nostalgia is rooted in the belief that the past was better than the present. Its purest form is a wish to be living in former times. The squire in Irving's sketchbook is a genuine specimen. He even regrets sometimes that he was not born a few centuries earlier. The evocation of Christmas past, however, can be rooted in a human delight in tradition, in a desire to be reassured that change is tempered by continuity, in antiquarian enthusiasms, and in a longing to make connections across time. The more discontinuity one is currently experiencing, the more meaningful traditions can become. Hence the ideal of having an old-fashioned Christmas. Out on an extreme sledging expedition in the Antarctic on Christmas 1902, Ernest Shackleton triumphantly produced a Christmas pudding he had hid away in a sock. Every Christmas has such moments when a connection with what endures over time makes the present more endurable. If traditions sometimes need to be invented to decrease the sense of queasiness that comes with too much change, so be it. A character in Schleiermacher's Christmas Eve speaks for many when he pronounces, this institution then we will maintain as, as it has been handed down to us, to me at least even its smallest details are full of significance. It is no contradiction that the same text declares the holiday to have an orientation towards the future as well. Such happy events bring home to us in a vivid manner at present the joys of the future. The festival itself is a proclamation of a new life for the world. It therefore has the present, the past, and the future intertwined in it. Dickens' A Christmas Carol is very much about changing the future. Which brings us back, we're close to the end, um, to the claim that Dickens invented the modern Christmas. The Christmas past that the Victorians delighted to recall was the one of great medieval halls. The shoemaker, Thomas Cooper, witnessed so much suffering during the depression of the 1840s, uh, often called the hungry 40s in British history, that he became a militant political activist and was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. In prison, he wrote a long poem with a suitably bitter theme, The Purgatory of the Suicides, 1845. His next book-length poem, however, was The Baron's Yule Feast, 1846, a work overflowing with every medieval Christmas detail imaginable, 
a Yule log and snow, mistletoe and wreaths, a bright holly and ivy, plum puddings and mince pies, a wassling bowl, a boar's head, and mouth-watering lists of dishes, uh, including swan even. Rather than an attack on aristocracy, it was an attempt to evoke the baronial generosity of old Christmas as a way of rousing his fellow Victorians to acts of charity. Oh, that my simple lay might tend to kindle some remorse in your oppressors' souls and bend their wills a cheerful help to lend and lighten labor's curse. Dickens' great achievement, by contrast, was to place Christmas charity in a modern urban setting. He translated the old Christmas ideal to an industrialized world and brought home its responsibilities to the middle classes and those who had made their fortunes in business. The world was changing, rearranging. Did that mean that Christmas changes too? Yes, and Dickens helped with the transition. Christmas was not dying out. People were still feasting. That was not enough, however. Christmas was always also about charity, generosity, and the binding together of the social classes. As the theologian F.D. Morris observed in a sermon he preached on Christmas 1839, a holiday that was no more than a selfish, indulgent feast was not satisfactory. If we care about nothing but ourselves, we shall not be merry at Christmas time or any other time. Dickens inspired modern people to, feel, to find some way to help people in need at Christmas time. Jane Carlyle read an advanced copy of A Christmas Carol given to her and her husband, Thomas Carlyle, by Dickens himself. She was immediately convicted by it. Her response was to renew her relationship with a poor governess who she had come to find annoying, but whom she realized was socially isolated and in need of her support. With the vast majority of reformed and dissenting Protestants now enthusiastically on board, a domestic focus on family and children, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, shopping, new carols, Christmas cards, a renewed commitment to generosity and charity in a modern context, and more. Christmas reached the end of the 19th century significantly bigger and stronger than it was at its start. It could be said of people in the late 19th century that they knew how to keep Christmas well if any moment in history ever possessed the knowledge. Thank you. <laughs>